Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Worship Stuff Podcast, the show where we talk about questions and topics that relate to the theology and practice of Christian worship. I'm your host, Jordan Elgie, and if you've been listening to and enjoying the podcast so far, could you take a moment to rate and subscribe and maybe leave a review? I would really love to receive any feedback that you have. And if you have a burning worship question that you'd love to ask, or if you just have any comments, please get in touch at worshipstuffpodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't yet listened to episode three, I'd encourage you to press pause and go back and listen to that now. In our last episode, about God as the subject of our worship, I shared a lengthy quote from theologian Robert Weber in which he talked quite a bit about God's story, and he even mentioned the phrase, doing God's story. And I thought this would be a great topic to unpack and to try to explain what we mean when we say God's story. So our question in today's episode is this, what is God's story and what does it have to do with worship? What does it mean for worship to do God's story? When I first heard the phrase God's story in conversations about worship, I recall having a bit of a grasp on what I thought God's story was, but I didn't have an understanding on how it related to worship. And then I heard the phrase, worship does God's story, and I really had no idea what that meant. So my hope is that by the end of this episode, you have a better grasp on just what God's story is and how worship might do this story. So, what is God's story? Simply put, God's story is just that. It is the story revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. It is the grand story, the meta-narrative, from creation to recreation, of God's actions in the world. Robert Weber says, The entire Bible from beginning to end tells how we were created in God's image, how we fell away into sin, and how God worked in history to restore our relationship. And that is a pretty concise way to remember God's story. This summary of God's story is also totally consistent with seeing God as the subject of our worship, which is what we explored in our last episode. In the book The Drama of Scripture, the authors, largely building on the work of N.T. Wright, describe the story of God or the meta-narrative of Scripture a little more in depth, and they use the metaphor of a play to tell the story in six acts, and they give a title to each one. And these six acts are Act 1. God establishes his kingdom at creation. God creates the heavens and the earth as a sort of kingdom, and God as the king creates human beings to inhabit the world and live in relationship with him. Act 2, rebellion in the kingdom, and this is the fall. Human beings choose against the king and choose sin. Their choice fractures their relationship and it introduces all kinds of distortions and corruptions into the kingdom. Act 3, the king chooses the people of Israel, and here redemption is initiated. God in infinite wisdom, chooses a people, Israel, to be the conduit through which restoration and redemption could be initiated and eventually completed. Through Israel, God sets in motion the plan for the destruction of evil and the undoing of the fracturing of relationship and the distortion of his good kingdom. Act 4. 
the coming of the king, and here redemption is accomplished. At the center and pinnacle of the story is Jesus. When he, the king, comes, he accomplishes for us and for the whole of creation all that we could not accomplish for ourselves. He dies and rises, and in doing so, defeats the powers of sin and death and inaugurates the restoration of all things. Act 5. Spreading the news of the king. And this is the mission of the church. It's in this act that we find ourselves. We are tasked with bearing witness to who the king is and to what he has done. We tell his story, and in hope we look forward to his promises, as redemption has been accomplished, but is not yet complete. Act 6. The Return of the King. Here, redemption is finally completed. When the king returns, he will make all things new. All things will be restored. All distortions and corruptions will be overcome. And God's dwelling will be with his people, as was God's intention from the beginning. So let's recap. Here are the six acts. Act 1. Creation. Act 2. Fall. Act 3. Israel. Act 4. Jesus. Act 5. The Church. Act 6. New Creation. And this really is a good story. It is so good, in fact, that we even have a word for it. And that word is gospel. Gospel means good news, and the story of God is the gospel. It is the good news of the redemption of the entirety of creation, and Jesus is the centerpiece. So what does God's story have to do with worship? The first answer to this question is that biblical worship always centers on God's story. Biblically faithful worship remembers God's actions in history. Go back to your Bibles and flip through Exodus and Leviticus. Count how many times God reminds the Israelites of their story. Over and over, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He reminds them of what he has done for them. And God's actions on Israel's behalf really became part of their identity. His story shaped them. It reminded them that they were no longer under the yoke of slavery, but were now free. And in Leviticus, the book that contains God's commanded rules for Israel's worship, God says over and over, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In Israel's foundational worship instruction books, God repeatedly reminded them of his story, which was also their story. This new identity as free people whom God rescued was so important to the people of Israel that it is entirely correct to say that the Israelites were people of the Exodus. In worship, which was an entire way of life for them, they recounted and remembered what God had done for them in bringing them out of slavery. Their worship was remembering Even their feasts, particularly the Passover celebration, which recounted and reenacted the Exodus events, focused on God's past actions. When we move forward to the New Testament, there are far less prescriptions for how the early Christians were to worship than there were for Israel, but there still remains a focus on God's story. In worship, both Israel and the early Christians looked to an event where God acted on their behalf 
And this action of God became the defining moment at the heart of each group's story. For Israel, God acted on their behalf in the exodus from Egypt. And for early Christians, the act of God at the very center of their story was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And these events in the life of Jesus, culminating in his passion, the Last Supper, his death, and his resurrection, form a type of new exodus. This connection isn't a stretch at all if we remember that the events of Christ's death and resurrection occur at Passover time. And the Last Supper, which we celebrate every time we receive communion, was originally a Passover meal. While we can say that the ancient Israelites were Exodus people, whose worship was shaped by the Passover meal and by the leaving of Egypt through the Red Sea, we can totally say that the early Christians were new Exodus people, whose worship was shaped by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything they did in worship was still Exodus-related, but it was now framed by what Jesus had done. This is particularly true of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if we know God's story well, we can see all the connections. The waters of baptism are a type of Red Sea event, and the Lord's Supper is a type of Passover meal. These Christian sacraments remember and reenact central parts of Israel's story, but are now dramatically reshaped and reframed by all that Jesus had done. And it's not only these sacraments that are related to Israel's part of the story. Early Christian preaching did the same thing. In fact, Robert Weber in his book Ancient Future Worship notes that every one of the five early sermons in Acts is based on the memory of how God has acted in history and has now acted in Jesus. This is particularly exhibited in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection was highlighted and related to Israel's story. So in both the Old and New Testaments, we see how the story of God's actions were foundational to the identity and worship of God's people, first to Israel and then to the early church. And Christian worship now, embodied in the sacrament, is rich with symbols, metaphors, and types of God's story. I think we can identify with the idea that story shapes us, can't we? Think of the stories that are told at family get-togethers or when you hang out with old friends. What do you talk about? How often is it that you say, Remember the time when... Think of Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, and family reunions. We get together and we retell and remember the family stories. We say, remember when we went there? Remember when so-and-so did this? And perhaps, like so many people in North America who have origins in other countries, we get together with grandma and grandpa and we hear stories from the old country and what life was like for them. These are all ways that a family can remember who they are and where they came from. It is a way of passing on identity from one generation to another. And really, Christian worship is the same thing. A key element of worshiping is remembering who we are and from where we have come. This is what ancient Israelite worship did, and this is what the early church did. And for us, following the guidance of Scripture, we should do the same. We should remember who we are and where we have come from in our worship, 
And focusing on God's story helps us do just that. Now, we must remember that God's story does not only lie in the past, and neither should our worship. Remember back to the six acts? Well, we are still in the middle of the story. It's not over yet. It is ongoing, and the best part lies ahead of us. So worship, although it is about remembering, is also about anticipating, about hope in God's promised future. Worship is about what God has done, what he is doing now, and what he has promised he will do. This is partly why, in many Christian traditions, the entire congregation declares together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. This one sentence acknowledges the past, present, future stance of Christian worship, all while centering on those new exodus events in the life of Jesus. So now we come to the idea that worship does God's story. And in a nutshell, worship that remembers what God has done, embodies what he's doing now, and practices hopeful anticipation of what he will do, is worship that does God's story. We not only tell and proclaim the story by reading scripture and by remembering and celebrating God's mighty actions, and we not only anticipate God's promised redemption in the future, But we live and act in accordance with the story, so to live it out and do God's story in the here and now. N.T. Wright gives a great illustration of what it means to embody or live in God's story. His illustration, which originally appears in his book, The New Testament and the People of God, and which gets retold in the drama of Scripture, which we mentioned earlier, goes something like this. Imagine that the script of a lost Shakespeare play is somehow rediscovered, and this script is nearly complete, with the first four acts being finished, as well as the final act. But somehow, Act 5 is missing. So the script is given to a group of Shakespearean actors and scholars who immerse themselves in the first four acts and in the final act. They study the characters and the language, and they learn as much as they can about the arc and trajectory of the story, so that when it comes time to perform the play, they can fill in, so to speak, the missing Act 5 using all their knowledge of the first four acts, and their knowledge of how the story ends in Act 6. They act out and do this story in order to complete the unwritten part to move the play toward the conclusion that the author had originally intended. And this is pretty much what we are talking about when we say that worship does God's story. So you may find yourself asking, this is all well and good, but what impact does this have for for me and for worship team people, for worship leaders, planners, and pastors? How do we shape the worship of our church so that it does God's story? Well, first, think prescriptively, as in, worship should do God's story. Like the Shakespeare illustration, we need to know the story. We need to soak in it. We need to drink it in so much that we can really live in the story. Then when it comes time to planning and leading worship, 
Remember the arc, the trajectory, from creation to new creation. This should be the story of worship. Tell this story in your songs, in your prayers, and in your sermons. Additionally, there are worship actions that also tell and enact God's story, and the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist are primary examples of this. Think of baptism as it retells the story of Genesis 1 and how God's Spirit hovered over the waters before God spoke and brought forth His creation. Think of baptism as it reenacts, so to speak, Israel coming through the waters of the Red Sea from slavery into freedom. Think of baptism as it unites us with Christ in His dying and rising to new life. Think of baptism as it anticipates being a new creation in Christ. Think of the Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, as remembering a type of Passover meal for God's people before God's great and decisive act of redemption in the Exodus from Egypt. Think of the Eucharist as it embodies God's provision of manna as bread from heaven for his people as they wandered the wilderness before entering the land of promise. Think of the Eucharist as it reenacts the Lord's Supper with Christ and his disciples. Think of the Eucharist as it anticipates the day when we will sit at table with Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth. We could go on and on, but the job for worship planners and pastors is to rediscover the ways in which God's story is retold and reenacted in word and in sacrament, in prayer and in song, and then do those things. Robert Weber says, We recite the story. We proclaim the story, we sing the story, and we are called to live out the story. And in his book, Ancient Future Worship, Weber recaps our theme throughout this entire episode. He writes, What does it mean to say worship does God's story? It is this, worship proclaims and acts and sings God's story. Worship is not a program. Worship is a narrative, God's narrative, of the world from its beginning to its end. Well, I hope this episode has been helpful for you in gaining a better understanding of what God's story is and how, in worship, we can do God's story. If you want to learn more, I would recommend starting with the two books that I've largely used as my main resources for today's episode. The first book is The Drama of Scripture by Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, and the second is Ancient Future Worship by Robert Weber. I will attach these book titles, as well as the scripture references for the five early Christian sermons in the book of Acts that I mentioned earlier in the show notes. As always, if you've learned something new or have any questions about our topic for today, send me an email at worshipstuffpodcast at gmail.com. It would be great to get the chance to interact with you. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening. May God's grace and peace go with you.